The Initiation Written by Alan Walton Harry, can you remember anything noteworthy about your time at the Salmon's Lodge? Well, let me see. Oh yeah, I do believe I can tell you something about what happened once. I was invited as a fine upstanding pillar of the bleeding community to attend my initiation at the Tilbury Dock Lodge. See, my mate Billy, the Chief Constable, he noted, he, well, he nominated me, see. At first I thought it were a sort of party thing, but everybody seemed to be rather serious and all. You know, well, the pleaders blindfolded me, and before I could say anything, I felt the cold steel of a blade, a sword against me throat. I did not like that. I can tell you, I always keep a small blade in me pocket, so I stabbed the bleeder with me blade. I twisted it around a few times just to make sure, you know, and I heard a thud as the bleeder fell to the floor. Bleeding blood everywhere, somewhere splashed on my bleeding shoes. I was not having any of it, and I ripped off the bleeding blindfold to see, to see, where you wouldn't believe it, all these geezers with pennies on, staring at me all serious-like. This is not the first time I've had to stab someone, and probably won't be the last. Billy was not happy and glared at me. I could feel me blood pressure going up, higher and higher, and so I glared back at him. Yeah. He bleeding looked away at this point, and I knew, I knew he would say nothing. Well, well what happened then, Harry? Well, for one thing, I don't like people getting that close. You know what, he could have cut me throat, and I thought, what the hell would happen to all my customers who depend on me to provide such a wonderful financial services in the fair town of Tilbury? See, Billy asked me if I wanted to join them salmons. I did, know no, I did not know what salmons was, see. I thought it was a good way to increase the revenue for our financial services divisions of Grimes Holding PLC. Once I saw all them geezers in pennies, I thought to myself that it was probably a pufter's club in it. Why did you go then, Harry? Well, was you not listening then? I just bleed and told you I thought it was a good opportunity for the firm, see? As I bleed and said, I looked across at Billy. He had a penny on as well and he smiled at me and gently told me that the body of their brother would be disposed of in a seemly manner, and that I should leave, bleeding cheek, while they conferred. I left them to it, didn't I? I did, though, forget to mention I was happy to undertake the gentle disposal of the body at the docks, where I have my concrete business, but under the circumstances, Fought later to forget that most of the geezers were salivating, and I guess I'm just guessing. See, they probably would eat their brother. The one thing I did not understand was the large glass bell jar 
which looked like inside was a large worm-like thing in it wriggling around and around and you know a bit like an eel that's what it was it looked like an eel as soon as I had stabbed the geezer it sort of came alive it really did its mouth opening and closing and showing little pointed teeth sort of like in them alien films I likes them alright okay Harry I think we have to leave it there alright then okay Floppy Ducks and Thals Written and narrated by Alan Walton Deirdre closed the bedroom curtains and went to the bathroom. Come on, Johnny, time to get into bed. Way past your bedtime. We've got an early start tomorrow if you want to visit the planetarium. I do, Mummy. I really, really do. Can we play floppy ducks? Um, just for a little while? I suppose we could. Just for a while. Yippee! They trundled into the bedroom, a big grin on Johnny's face. He loved floppy ducks. It was a game that he had invented, whereby you stand at the top of the bed, make a quack, quack, bit like a duck and then the other person joining in goes bang bang you're dead then the one standing flops down onto the bed in a crumpled heap Johnny just loved playing this game the idea probably came to him after he'd been out with his dad shooting game and seeing the birds flop down from the sky in a splattered sort of way Okay, Johnny, are you ready then? Yup. I'm a duck, a floppy duck. Please don't shoot me. Quack, quack, quack. I will, I will. Hoo, hoo, hoo. Bang, bang, you're dead. Johnny crumpled down in a heap on the bed with such force that he bounced up just a little, a broad grin on his cheeky face. Johnny, please don't ask for more. Remember, we must leave here early in time to catch our booked train. Johnny looked slightly disappointed as Deirdre tucked him in for the night. I believe in aliens, Mum. I really, really do. Well, if that makes you happy, then you keep thinking on, my pet. We all have to have beliefs or our tiny minds would shrivel up. Now, good night and sleep tight. Let's hope the bugs don't bite. Good night, Mummy. Good night. The light was turned off. But the Donald Duck light bathed the ceiling in a celestial cluster of stars that moved slowly across the ceiling. Right below Orion's belt, 
and not too far up from the Pleiades sisters, the faint face of Donald the Duck could be seen smiling down on him. One of his last thoughts, before the cloak of Morpheus enveloped him, was he so wished that he could meet one of these beings from the stars. If it could, if it could be possible, then he would even give up all of his pocket money and wash the dishes for his mum forever. So strong was his wish that the essential energy of it would spread everywhere. Make no mistake, everything in the universe is connected. His mind was fizzing with the thought of it, stronger and stronger, and with a smooth passing, morphed into a grateful deep sleep, while his subconscious carried on the sheer desire to meet an outworlder. His deep desire, his thoughts, would transcend everything. But he did not know this at this moment. He slept deeply for at least two hours and half opened his eyes as the pale blue light gently nudged him into a low wakefulness. He saw the shape approaching his bed. He was not scared. It was the outline of a rather spindly biped with a large central eye that was smiling down at him, just above his face. He could smell a faint fishy odour as the two-fingered thin hand gently stroked his hair. He was not afraid in the least. He had his greatest wish come true as the creature started to squawk in a strange but melodic way. He didn't know what the squawks meant, but it was certainly understandable in many ways that he could never describe. Words themselves are always inadequate, but these rapid squawks showed images of galaxies and planets that had never been seen by any person before in history. This was a gift from such an advanced civilization that he could never even ever to imagine or equal. His head filled with these wonderful images and information. The presenters of this new and free knowledge are a race called the Thals. They have studied the human race since the time of the first rough ape to the present day. There was the overwhelming sense of love that the gentle hand on his forehead was bestowing upon him. He somehow knew that these superior creatures cared about our collective well-being. The hand gently lifted off his head, and he thought one word. Remember, remember always. The night unfolded as it should, and Johnny woke to see his mum placing a cup of tea on his bedside table. Wakey, wakey, my little spaceman. Drink your tea quickly, as we have to get to the station. We'll get some breakfast in London. Johnny saw in his mind's eye the 3D layout of the route to the station, and seamlessly a very quick version of the journey to Euston. He then saw the precise route to the planetarium. 
It was effortless. He'd been given a gift beyond words. He shut off this revelation effortlessly, drank his tea in three gulps and dressed quickly. He sort of flew down the stairs to where everyone was waiting. The journey began. At the planetarium, Johnny managed to meet up with one of the lecturers of astronomy, a very famous man indeed, and they had a good talk. The lecturer was stunned to be bombarded with new and extremely interesting information. The astronomer was so impressed with Johnny's knowledge that he invited the whole family for lunch at his favourite restaurant. No arguments, he insisted. After a long lunch, Johnny was able to impart so much information that the astronomer was overwhelmed by the accuracy of what the boy could tell him. He asked Johnny's parents if he could stay in touch with Johnny and, of course then, many years have passed and they did indeed keep in touch and Johnny was fast becoming an international wonder. Actually, he's just been appointed head of NASA in the USA, and the whole family now live in splendid luxury in Florida. The strangest reason for the move to this humid climate was that Johnny wanted to talk with crocodiles. Really? Somewhere in the small spiral that lies just behind Cygnus, many thals must be smiling. With earthling Johnny in a very powerful role for good, the planet Earth might evolve after all. They so hope so. One day these apes could transcend to something of great wonder. The potential was there and, universe willing, it would happen under Johnny's watch. Ah, by the way, footnote. Johnny still likes to play floppy duck with his new wife. But that, <laughs> that's another story completely. The end. Game. Written and narrated by Alan Walton. They both walked into the gun store, bathed in excitement, as this day had been a long time coming. The air conditioning was welcome as they escaped from the searing heat outside. Wayne walked up to the counter and stared down at the great selection of pistols presented in the illuminated glass cabinets in front of him. A large guy, a very large guy, walked up to the counter. Dark arms with an oversaturation of tattoo ink and a prominent skull and crossbones gracing his neck. He inquired what sort of pistol Wayne was looking for. Wayne replied that he did not have a specific type of pistol on his mind, but 
that they'd always fancied a Colt 45. The assistant smiled as he unlocked the cabinet from the back, pulling out a pristine 45. Wow! All shiny and brand spanking new, and handed it to Wayne. Asked him if it felt comfortable in his hand. As soon as it was in his hand, he gripped it tight, and then, with a little practice and a silly grin on his face, spun it round his finger. It sure was heavy. Jed, only fifteen, stood well back, looking at nothing in particular. He only came along because Wayne, his elder brother, had insisted so. Wayne mostly got his own way. At the counter, Wayne felt powerful with this beast of a weapon now held in two hands. The assistant watched him carefully, fingers tapping on the counter, his coffee in the back room probably now getting cold. This kid had been toying with the gun for over 15 minutes and not said a word, just an inane grin on his face. Finally, Wayne had made up his mind and asked the price. The assistant checked the label and advised that it would be... Yeah, it would be $1,150. If Wayne wanted a warranty, then that would be another $156 extra, but for a three-year fully inclusive cover. Wayne grinned, that Wayney grin, and said he would take it pulled out a stash of $150 bills and passed them to the assistant. Wayne noticed that the assistant was putting the colt into a box and then into a bag. Wayne wanted to stuff the gun inside his jeans, but the assistant advised that it was federal law that the gun had to be boxed and in a bag before it could be taken out of the shop. Wayne then realised he'd not bought any ammo and purchased two boxes of the right stuff and put this as well into the bag. They left the shop. Driving back home, Jed was filled with excitement at the thought of being able to have a couple of shots with this magnificent machine Wayne had promised. As soon as they got back, Wayne took out his newly acquired treasure out of the box and knowing that herein after he could be the boss whenever he chose. That was his rather cruel streak that ran through him, passed on from earlier generations, and actually something he could do nothing about. He loaded two bullets into the chamber and passed the gun to Jed and invited him to go out and have a couple of shots, as promised. The gun was placed into Jed's trembling hand. He was wild-eyed as he walked out of the kitchen and into the garden, eyes keenly looking for a target. He soon found something, an old rusty petrol can peppered with holes. He aimed straight down the line and fired. What happened then was a complete surprise. 
a millisecond after the percussion, he was thrown backwards, the force so strong against his small body. In the kitchen, Wayne was watching, doubled up with laughter, as the same thing happened again. Chad winced in embarrassment as he walked back inside. Wayne felt powerful as he knew exactly how to discharge the weapon. He loaded the chamber with six bullets and strode out into the garden like a real cowboy. Two pigeons were settled on the shed roof. He stood still and with the gun in both hands, legs apart, he fired. The first bullet hit the bird square on in the chest and it literally blew apart with the force of the impact. The next shot before the second bird could flee, took the bird's head off as the body flapped, its wings falling to the ground. Jed, watching on, was in awe of his brother's skill. This sure was a powerful gun. They both sauntered back into the kitchen and out of the hot sun. Wayne, feeling like a real man, pulled out a half-full bottle of bourbon, two glasses, both now full. Down in one was the theme. This repeated until the bottle was empty. They were both laughing and giggling as they looked at the gun on the table in front of them. Eventually, Wayne suggested a game, a new and exciting game, He'd seen it in films over the years. Now what was it called? Ah yes, Rusky Roulette. Jed was curious. He'd not heard of this expression before. Wayne explained that the game consisted of one bullet being placed in the chamber and spun several times. Nobody but nobody could determine the position of the bullet. Then... The nozzle of the gun placed beside the temple of the head, and when the player was ready, then, then the trigger pulled. Wayne looked at Jed and indicated that he could have the first go. How kind of him. The odds were good, so no need to worry. Jed, trembling, picked up the colt and placed it to the side of his head. He looked at Wayne, who nodded for him to go ahead. His finger found the trigger, and with an almighty amount of willpower, he pulled it hard. Click! No bullet in that one. So relieved was Jed that he started to giggle. The nervous energy had to come out somewhere. Wayne picked up the gun with an air of authority. The only thing missing was a cowboy hat. He downed the last dregs of the bourbon and placed it to the side of his head, knowing he was a lucky person. He would only have to do this once to prove how brave he was. He pulled hard at the trigger and knew nothing more. His brain splattered across the kitchen wall. Yes, he only had to do this once. Jed wailed at the sight of his brother slumped over the table. 
and himself covered in blood and grey matter that had splattered back from the wall with the force of the explosion. Wayne's eyes were open, looking up at him, expressionless. The New Neighbour, written and narrated by Alan Walton. The sun was beginning to set over the large mansion, Bethelstone Manor in rural Wiltshire. The mansion was the residential home of Reginald Ponsonby Smythe, OBE, Acker, the Marquis of Bethelstone. The servants were toing and froing around inside, some lighting log fires, some working hard in the kitchen, preparing a sumptuous dinner for his grace, and some preparing his bedroom for later. Hot stone water bottles, everything he needed. Smithers, the butler, arrived to the side of the Marquis, and inquired, <coughs> Your grace, would you like for me to bring you your normal aperitif? Um, um, yes, indeed, you. That would be splendid. I think a small brandy will suffice. Shall we say six measures? It's a wee bit nippy tonight, and I don't want to be catching a cold. Now, do I? No, Your Grace, we certainly don't want that then, do we? I shall attend to this directly, Your Grace. With that, Smithers toddle off to the drinks cabinet to dispense the brandy. Smithers arrived, silver tray in hand, and placed the rather full glass on the coffee table. Oh, there we are, Your Grace. Will you be requiring anything else at this juncture? And would you like me to draw the curtains? It's getting a little dusky. Ah, thank you, Smithers. This will be quite sufficient at the moment. Um, and by the way, have you uncalled the Breslif Chardonnay yet? That little beauty, I believe it's a 1978 vintage, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, quite so, Your Grace. Exactly correct. Your Grace is exceptionally gifted in this respect. Eh, why, thank you, Smithers, for the compliment. For the record, it was a 1981 Breslif Chardonnay. Hmm. Smithers wandered over and tugged at the thick cords of the lounge curtains, drawing them together, rather like the end of a cinema show, but without an anthem. The curtains were almost closed when Smithers noticed a bright yellow light, which seemed to be gently coming down in the field next to the manor. The garden, the trees, the statues and the fountain were illumined in this ghostly light. 
Oh, 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 Grace, your Grace, your Grace, come to the window immediately. There, there, there's uh, something very strange happening outside. The Marquis slowly heaved himself out of his high-backed armchair and slowly navigated the furniture to arrive at Smithers' side. Ew, what the dickens is going on, Smithers? His index finger acted like a compass, and the Marquis now saw it and gasped. The light was now quite close to the ground and settled in Jacob's field. It then dimmed, flickered, and then darkness. Oh, goodness gracious, it must have been a firework of some sort, probably a very large one. Quite so, Your Grace. The Marquis returned to his armchair and quaffed back the last of the brandy. Oh, what a palaver, Smithers. I think I'll have another brandy, if you please. Certainly, Your Grace. As Smithers started to pour the brandy, the front doorbell rang loudly. Who could it be? Oh, 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 how inconvenient. Could you attend to the front door, my good fellow? If it's anyone selling something, then send them away with a flea in their ear. Yes, Your Grace, I'm on my way. Um, I wonder who it could be. It could be one of the villagers. Smithers, bless his cotton socks, was not prepared for the sight that was about to appear. Oh, uh, can I help you, sir? Hello, 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 and greasings. Uh, one moment, please. I don't think I quite understand, sir. How may I be of assistance? Hello, 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 and greetings. I am your new neighbour from the Westfield. I'm sorry, sir, but we don't have any neighbours for at least ten miles. You do now. Are you the controller of this structure? You. Well, I'm the head butler. Do you need to speak with the Marquis, then? Is Marquis the controller? I need to speak with the controller. I can inquire if the Marquis is able to see you, but in nearly all cases it would be by appointment only. I must see the controller. I'm your new neighbour. Very well, sir. If you would like to take a seat in the vestibule, I will inquire if His Grace is able to come and see you. At the moment, he is preparing to dine. Dine? Dine? What's dine? Uh, to partake of food, sir. Uh, 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 one moment, please. Smithers walked into the lounge, looking rather perplexed, to say the least. Oh, 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 Your Grace, there is a gentleman here to see you, and if I may say so, a rather strange-looking gentleman. Uh, he says he's your new neighbour. Oh, we don't have a neighbour. I know, Your Grace, but he's insisting that he sees you. It sounds rather urgent. It might be one of your army friends. What shall I say? Oh, um... 
Tell him I'm about to dine. I can't see him now. I'm famished. As you say, Your Grace, I shall attend to this directly. The Marquis gulped the remaining drops of the brandy, wiped his moustache. He was ready to eat. As he started to heave himself out of the chair, he felt a hand on his shoulder, which gently pushed him back into the armchair. He turned, flabbergasted, at the tiny man standing to his side. Oh, who the devil are you? I'm Euro. I'm, I'm pleased. And you should be pleased. I am your new neighbour. You are the controller, yes? Well, yes, I suppose I am. I do own everything here. Yes, if you wish, you may call me a controller. I don't understand how you can be my neighbour. Oh, oh, one of your earth hours ago, I could understand it if you said that. But I've landed, and now, now... I'm your brand new neighbour. <laughs> we have much to discuss. Shall we commence? But I was just about to dine. That's perfectly acceptable. After all, you are the controller. I shall enjoy watching you masticate. I've never seen that before. Ew, I could ask my butler to lay a place for you if you wish. We could talk over dinner. No, 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 that will not be necessary. I don't eat as such. I am not, how do you say, logical. One moment, please. Ah, yes, biological. That's the one. Who will the gentleman be dining with you, Your Grace? Um, well, he will be with me, but he does not wish to eat. The Marquis rises, and they both wander to the dining room, where a beautiful spread presents. Oh, take a seat, Mr. Uh, uh, um, um. Oh, it's all right, my name is Eurol. False pod excreted in the year of Janus. Oh, oh, quite so, quite so. Perhaps you could enlighten me for the reason for your visit. I'm a little confused. Does it relate to matters of the village? Ah, uh, no. 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 All be revealed in due course, Mr. Controller. But in the meantime, please start to masticate. I shall be fascinated to watch. His visitor's eyes seem to rotate every time he placed a succulent piece of pheasant into his hungry little mouth. They also glowed, slightly bluish, and when he started to chew in earnest, Ural grinned and made a sort of giggling sound as he stared intently at the rapid jaw movements of the Marquis and marvelled at the swallowing movement as the food cascaded down the gullet. He was obviously getting some sort of thrill watching this as he shuffled around in his chair. Smithers poured some Chardonnay into the glass, and the Marquis swished the white fluid around in his mouth, and then swallowed and burped. 
This was almost too much for Ural to bear. The Marquis noticed some steam emanating from the side of Ural's head. Smithers pondered if this strange man was having an organism of some kind. It did seem rather foodie sexual. He said nothing and just stared at this strange sight. Controller, do you like masticating? I like to watch you. I believe I shall stay here for a few of your days. So much, so much to learn and discover. I don't think that will be possible at the moment, my dear fellow. I don't think the spare bedrooms are made up or fires lit as, as such. Now, now, don't worry about that. I shall stay with you in your bedroom. Oh, one moment, please. Your bedroom. Do you masticate in bed, I wonder? Ew, well, sometimes I get up in the middle of the night and eat a s just a few small cakes which Mabel the cook prepares especially for me. Oh, oh, how jolly. That's settled then. I shall watch nocturnal mastications as well. Absolutely fascinating. As you've been so accommodating... I shall show you my spaceship tomorrow. How would you like that then? Ew, that does sound like fun. The Marquis was perplexed by all of this, but got into bed and snuggled down under the satin sheets. Ew, would you care to sit in the chair over there by the window so I can get off to sleep, please? Now, now, now. Ew, pa pardon me? Now, I, I don't know what you mean. I do not care to sit over there by the widow. Mm. Processing. Oh, I mean window. Oh, how can I sleep with you sitting there staring at me? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Oh, waiting for what? you to start eating those cakes over there. Yes. Yeah, but I don't want to eat cakes right now. You must start eating cakes. I'm waiting for you to masticate. Oh, sorry. Processing. Masticate. You are the controller. You can eat cakes whenever you wish. So, eat cakes. Eat cakes. The Marquis pulls at the bell cord to summon Smithers. After a few minutes, there is a loud knocking on the door. Oh, whatever it is, Your Grace, it's two in the morning. Shall I enter? Yes, Smithers, please do. Smithers entered and approached the bed. Euro was leaning over the Marquis, stuffing pieces of cake into his mouth and squeaking with delight at the sight of the whiskery jaw clapping like a mousetrap, as the mouth was nearing capacity. Smithers started to walk towards the bed, and a voice stopped him in his tracks. Freeze legs! Freeze legs! With that, Smithers found that his legs did not work. 
In fact, they were frozen solid. Ew, what have you done to my butler, Mr. Eurol? Now, now, he spoils the mastication. I am cross. The Marquis detected a dimming of Eurol's eyes and a sour look from his curled purple lips. You biopeds are really not as much fun as I imagined. I'm sorry you feel that way, Mr. Yuru. Now perhaps you may like to leave. Please escort Mr. Yuru from the premises, if you please. I would, Your Grace, but I can't move my legs. Unfreeze legs. Unfreeze legs. Ooh, Your Grace, my legs are working again. Uh, Mr. Euro, please come with me and I will show you out. I enjoyed watching you masticate, Mr. Marquis. Not much else was of interest to me. Now... Oh, each to his own, I suppose. Now, please allow me to sleep. Euro was escorted to the front door. And as the door was opening, he turned to face Smithers. Do you like to masticate, Smithers? Here, yeah, good, mm, good night, Mr. Eurol. Safe journey to wherever you are off to. I think next time you should make a telephone appointment. Now, now. With that, Eurol glided along the lawn at great speed, up over the bushes and trees, and to settle down in the west field next to his ship. Open door, open door. The main door of the craft swished open and he stepped inside. Bethelstone Manor lit up and the trees around as the ship lifted skywards. There was a slight humming sound as the anti-gravity spinners came on stream. The Marquis pulled the pillow over his head and switched his head and the world off, most firmly off. Pieces of sticky cake all around his head. The end? The Encounter, written and narrated by Alan Walton. It was almost dusk when Martin approached the bridge that traversed the forest and near to the picnic area. The small river was flowing fast and a delight to the ears. A few steps forward and he found some peace in watching the undulating and churning below. He saw the odd fish in the depths, accelerating in a forward direction in the narrow approach to the pillars of the bridge, along with some feathers and an empty plastic bottle. He sure hated the people who threw their rubbish in the river, really hated them. He paused for a while while just being 
and soaked up the vibrations of nature all around him. He felt almost guilty, feeling as close to the perfection of nature. Wood pigeons cooed, and in the distance the distinctive howl of a fox. He leaned forwards, using the bridge end as a support. His legs were tired, and he still had a couple of miles down the bridle track before he would emerge by the A1, and then, and then, back to the life he had so grown to hate. These moments, these moments were precious to him, so very precious. He simply loved forests. There was something fresh and enchanting about them. They were all different, and each one he explored was different so many ways, each with its own charms and atmosphere. He always found solace in forests, apart from other people who broke the tranquility with their loud voices and loutish behaviour. He was in reverie and in another world, and it was all just for him. That's what he wanted to believe, and for him, at this moment, this was true. He sat down to rest a while longer, leaning back against the rough stone wall, lit a cigarette and exhaled with satisfaction the sensuous smoke. Turkish cigarettes, these were, that he brought back from Ankara. No other smoke could compete with these delightful woodbines, like Gitar but even better. When out of the corner of his eye, he noticed movement. At first he could not actually see anything, but then he saw a vixen run across the track, followed closely by her cubs. He smiled at this and noticed that far back on the track was a stationary figure. He was sure that it was a man, but it was just too far to make out any detail. He felt curiosity at this remote sight. He reached into his rucksack and dragged out a coke, flicked the pull and poured the refreshing bubbles down his throat. Almost instantly his thirst was slaked and he burped with pleasure. He loved the sensation as the gas crossed the tympanic membrane at the top of his nose. You know, we've all experienced this delightful feeling, especially as children. He glanced over to where he had seen the distant figure, and it had moved closer. But he was still puzzled how the person had travelled that distance in such a short period of time. It definitely was a man, and yes, he was dressed in a long coat of a dark brown nature. His eyes were now fixed on the figure, but it did not move. Distracted, he saw the little scarab beetle scuttle across to the other side of the bridge, obviously in a hurry for whatever reason. This was its world. He looked over again to see if there was any movement by the figure, but, but it was not in the same place. 
It was much closer, and that really puzzled him. He stood up and lit another cigarette. Just a teeny bit jittery, and for a reason he could not understand. The figure had vanished. He spun around as the hand squeezed his shoulder. There in front of him was a very old man with a long white beard, grinning broadly at him. Oh, God! How did you do that? Don't be scared, young Martin. It's, it's just that I have such a silly sense of humour. I like to show off my magics. To the right sort of people, of course. But I never saw you walking towards me. You were just there, and then somewhere else, in the blink of an eye. Yes, I suppose I was. But, but, but don't let that worry you. It's just simple stuff I picked up from others over the centuries. Centuries? Martin gasped. Oh dear, Martin, you seem to be one of those folk that measure everything, including time. There is really no need for that, my lad. Really not. It is around, but it's not. That sort of rhymes, doesn't it? <laughs> Try not to worry yourself with these thoughts. There is only now. This moment. Try to remember this, won't you? May, may, may I ask what work you do for a living, Martin? Oh, well, I work for a company that carries out time and motion analysis. It's basically to help people work more efficiently at their workplaces. Oh, <laughs> uh, pardon me for saying so, but that's all nonsense in the overall scheme of things. Perhaps, well, if, well, if we meet again, we could delve into movement and time against space, couldn't we? Well, that does sound rather interesting, Mr... Mr... Oh, just call me Merle. I like that, and it seems quite hip for the 21st century, methinks. Don't you? That's quite a cool handle, Merle. You sound quite woke for an elderly person. That's nice of you to say so, Martin. Of course you will not believe me when I tell you that I also live in what you might call the future. At this revelation, Martin stepped back a couple of paces, trying very hard to understand the implications of what Merle had told him. Martin, I should tell you that I came here for a specific purpose. Um, what purpose, Merle? To warn you, Martin, that you would be approached by a man. Your, your, how is it called? Managing Director. He will invite you to a special dinner, and it will be under the understanding that he wants to thank you for all your hard work and dedication to your job. He also wants to introduce you to some of his friends, who are keen to meet you. I need to tell you that you should turn this down. Think of a reason, an excuse, anything. It's not a good thing to do. This um, shall pass in 33 days. 
and he will extend his invitation in eleven days hence from this date. How, how do you know all this? I just know, and it does not unwind well. I assure you, you have been warned. Now, on your way, and heaven speed back to your world. With that, Merle faded into nothingness, and Martin felt a cold chill run right through him. He had a fancy thought. It was weird. It seemed ungentle that he'd been speaking with the mighty Merlin himself. A figure emerged from the thick undergrowth away down by the river, binoculars hanging from its neck, then raised, staring at the bewildered Martin on the bridge, scratching his head after this encounter. Wisps of smoke rose from the trees further down the river, perhaps a campfire. The figure retreated back into the forest and Martin trundled on to join the world he had left behind. Sometime later, Martin could hear the frantic traffic, still a way off but definitely heard, and his heart seemed to sink just a little as he realised he was heading back into his humdrum life. He tried to lighten his mood with the thought of becoming, yes, perhaps he could do this, a forest ranger. Leave all that frenetic nonsense behind for good. Yes, he would investigate all of that when he got home. Something to look forward to. Through some outlying bracken and dead wood, he emerged from his green paradise breathing in the carbon monoxide and diesel fumes. Oh joy from a black heaven! The bus stop was only half a mile further on, but his legs were not eager to get there quickly. He would take his time. He came to a lay-by and sat down on his rucksack, looked at his watch and realised the bus would be another twenty minutes or so he was still in a dreamlike state after his encounter with Merle, the wise old man. His thoughts were blasted by the loud horn of the BMW limo, which roared to a stop directly in front of him. The window silently wound down, and Martin was startled to see it was his boss, Mr Kruger. A sort of friendly voice boomed out. Oh, Liebertzeit, fancy seeing you here, Martin. Have you been for one of your hikes, then? Well, yes, sir, I have. That is good, Martin. Good for the body and good for the mind, yeah? Now jump in and I will drop you home, young man. Martin feigned gratitude, got up, put his rucksack in the back and jumped in the front. They were away at high speed, the force of acceleration most definite. This is really strange that you saw me at this time, sir. This place? Stimmt! Just one of those things in the cosmic plan that guides us on the right path in life. 
Martin swallowed hard and sort of made an affirmative gulp which seemed to suffice although he did get a curious stare from his boss. Martin, I have got the great plans for you but that can wait for another day, okay? Yeah. Martin remembered the number 11 and what Merle had told him. Kruger looked briefly at him and smiled. For sure it was a false smile. There was no further conversation until the limo pulled up outside the large house where Martin had a flat. Until Monday, then, Martin. <laughs> Martin forced out a mumble. Thank you as he exited the car. A figure was staring out of the bay window of number 33. An old man, with fingers crossed and an almost neutral smile. Nobody saw him, as he then faded from view. Unseen magics were on Martin's side, but would it be enough against the newly latched-on forces those of evil, bad intent. The end. Save our souls. Save our souls. Save us. Save us. The Gift Written and narrated by Alan Walton Marcus leaned over to his wife proffering the latest photo of Auto Magic magazine his index finger pointing to the fancy grill on the unbelievable Porsche X90 He beamed with delight as he was already considering the type of upholstery, add-ons, 
colour and general customization. It already decided it would be red. No other colour would do. He wondered what the waiting time would be for this car of dreams. Gail turned and looked at him closely. Was this really the man she had married? He had been so caring and attentive when they first met over ten years ago. They already had a top-of-the-range Land Rover gracing their driveway. She wondered if he just wanted to impress the neighbours or, more worryingly, to attract ladies to join him on blistering speed runs on motorways. A Porsche X90 was certainly a lady killer. He was obsessed and nothing would be able to stop him buying it. His recent time in the city had been very profitable and, really, money was no obstacle for him to get what he wanted. <sighs> she sighed as she went back to reading her book. Tiny footsteps bounding down the stairs and little Stacy announced her present with a yelp of delight, her face covered in chocolate and that inane grin when kids really don't know why they are happy, but just are. She jumped onto her daddy's lap and was quickly brushed aside. There were a few tears as she nestled into her mother's lap. Gail glared at him as he was almost salivating over the X90 review. He looked at the stockists in his county and was delighted to discover that there was one in Fylde, not too far away. He smiled a flexor smile at his wife, not genuine, looked at his watch and excused himself. He was going to buy an X90 and to hell with anybody else. This was going to be his treasure. It has to be said that nefarious thoughts did skim his mind. Good job that Gail was not psychic. He was thinking of a new secretary in HR and he remembered how she smiled at him. That would be his good looks he thought, and that she had seen him pull up in his dandy Land Rover. Once she saw the Porsche, she would be all over him and a scramble to get hotel keys. He sped off with the Autoglide on sports mode. His spirits were high. Stacy was sucking her thumb as Gail read out loud to her. Stacy did not really understand all of the words, but it did comfort her. She was feeling hurt that Daddy had rejected her. She loved her Daddy. She looked up at her mum, removed her thumb with a flop, and started to say some words, over and over again. Daddy's got a red car, a red car, all shiny and new. He drives so very fast, pretty lady in the front, but who? 
She's holding Daddy's arm like you used to do. Daddy don't want us anymore. They go to a hotel in the shiny new car that arrives with a roar. Stacy settled down on Gail's lap. It took a few minutes for Gail to take in what Stacy had rhymed. She felt a cold welling up inside her. This little bundle on her lap had a unique gift and that was an insight into a potential future. Tears rolled down her face as she began to realise that she was losing Marcus. That bloody car! It was the start of a nightmare for her. She would come up with a plan and find out who this girl in HR was and warn her off, to be sure. As the weeks unfolded, she learnt a lot more about this potential future, bit by bit. One Saturday evening, Marcus had to go into the office, really, for a very important meeting. Without a kiss goodbye, he walked out and seemed to be eager to leave. At least that's what it seemed, judging by the speed of his leaving and the roar of the X-90 down the drive. Stacy was glued to the TV. She loved to watch the numbered balls on the lottery come tumbling down. After the numbers were called out, she asked her mummy if she would like to know the numbers for the following Saturday. Gail gasped. She already knew that Stacy had a great gift and agreed. She knew it would please Stacy, and that little girl needed all the help she could get. Stacy called out the numbers. One, seven, eleven, twenty-one, thirty-three, and thirty-seven. And the bonus ball would be five. The following Saturday came around soon enough and they were glued to the TV. Marcus was away again, and this time she did not really care. Stacy was grinning broadly as the Camelot machine started up. She was absolutely certain she was right. The balls dropped one by one, and Gail fell back on the sofa as Stacy's predicted numbers all lined up just like the alignment of planets before some monumental event. And then, bonus ball, five. Gail swore Stacy to complete secrecy as she poured herself a very generous glass of wine. Marcus arrived back quite late, babbling on about some important client he had to sort out. Gail and Stacy were smiling. They had the secret in their hearts. On the Monday, after Marcus had gone to work, Gail telephoned Camelot and almost fainted as they told her she had won 18 million pounds. 18 million. They instructed her not to tell anyone and wait for their representative to call and to advise her on next steps. Within a couple of days, 
There was that huge chunk of money in a special bank account set up by Camelot. So many zeros after 18. Mind-boggling. Still hurting from the pain Marcus had caused, she booked a six-week holiday in Barbados for herself and Stacy, and they could both start to heal their wounds. It was a Friday evening, and Marcus had been to the pub. He pulled up, slightly on the drive, and the rest of the X-90 on the grass. Strange, he thought. No lights on. They must have gone to bed. He didn't really care. And then he was shocked to find that they were not in the house at all. He was even more shocked to discover the goodbye note on the kitchen table. No kiss crosses at the end. He sat at the kitchen table and wept. What had he done? The end. Brother Michael's Departure Written and narrated by Alan Walton The notices framed in black arrived through the letterboxes of all the first grade salmons spread across the county. The Lord Lieutenant's was delivered by a private messenger. Almost simultaneously the envelopes were being torn open. There were no tears or sadness as is the salmon way of things. It was Brother Michael, his inhabited life form or body, had died, but they were saddened very much that the essence, the essence itself, the larva, had perished when no longer able to feed off the brain stem. On this matter, there were some wailings behind closed doors. Michael had been the one who entertained everybody at their gatherings, telling silly jokes that only salmons would understand. Now the essence had departed, it was up to those that had been left behind to celebrate his short life here on earth. The corpse was placed into a refrigerated cabinet at the perfect temperature, 4 degrees Celsius, that is the perfect setting to preserve meat without damaging smooth muscle or cartilage. This was considered very important by the Grand Master, Brother Joseph, who now would be making plans for the very special ceremony for the dear departed lava, Brother Michael. Around a week later, a bright yellow envelope flopped onto the respective doormats of the higher echelon of the order. Again, the Lord Lieutenant's was hand-delivered. 
The enclosed notice read, Your attendance as a high caste is required at the service to celebrate the life of Brother Michael. After our ceremony, there shall be provided a dinner and moderate celebrations. You are required to wear your black aprons out of respect for our dearly departed brother. Those that would like to utter some verses from the Holy Cronoil should notify the secretary to the lodge, who would decide the order of utterances. The ceremony would take place at Seven Ake House, on the upper floor at 6.30pm on the 8th of January. No guests for this particular function. Yours in black, Brother Joseph. The following few days would be very busy for Brother Joseph as he had to plan the evening to the slightest and smallest detail. As Brother Michael had been a high caste, it behoved Joseph to do his very best to make it an occasion that would be very special. A few days passed over the wretched Christmas period, while he meticulously planned all of the programme for the Blessed Eights. The Salmon Order absolutely loathed the Christian celebrations and kept themselves to themselves during all of the religious and commercial nonsense. The next few days saw some of the worst weather ever seen in Wiltshire, with savage blizzards and deep snow. The eighth arrived, and most of the high caste opted to teleport to Savonake House. The lava did not want to get too cold. Brother Joseph's staff had now completed all of the decorations in the rather grand dining room. Black and purple balloons in their hundred had been affixed to the metal walls, while streamers hung from the overhead chandelier. The dining table itself was long and perfect to seat twelve inhabited bodies. Adjacent to the table, was the large bell jar, with the supreme lava observing all of the activities with interest, bubbles rising from its orifice. The esteemed ones were served drinks by pretty young waitresses with fresh wounds on the back of their necks and indicating that they had had lava inserted into their brain stems, the medulla oblongata. They would comply with everything instructed. Some of the more adventurous and lecherous salmons would abuse these young ladies and, right in front of everyone, nobody cared in the slightest. In the kitchen, Brother Joseph was attending to the last turnings of the corpse, which was rotating slowly over a spit roaster, serous fluid dripping from cracked skin and puffing steam as it hit the flames below. A young man rang the gong, and the gaggle of salmons made their way into the dining room, the delightful smell of succulent cooked meat filling their nostrils, and many salivating at the thought of what was to come. The dining room 
looked absolutely splendid and extremely vivid with all the contrasting decorations. Brother Joseph rose to commence the proceedings. We are gathered together to celebrate the life of our dearly departed brother Michael. He shall be mentioned in the ongoing Holy Cronoil as the one who could make us understand human thinking, although primitive, and thus assist our cause to subjugate these creatures to our will. Our real form would not be able to take this world without our inhabitation of these four-limbed bodies. The seven-sided star shall cast its light upon us all, the chosen ones. Those that oppose shall be cast away and will surely fall. The chosen ones, the chosen ones, good to take this world, its beautiful bounty will not us deprive. To subjugate all these souls and those that stand against will not survive. We are the chosen ones, the chosen ones. They all sat down as brother Joseph rose again. Brother Michael excelled at many things, but above all other things will be remembered for discovering a hostile band of religious people plotting against our order. Without assistance he went to their church one Sunday morn and wiped them all out with his machine gun. He wore his cloak of invisibility. Nobody saw him enter that church in Swindon or leave. That crime, our glory. It was never solved and never will be. <laughs> he was a true and blessed salmon and will always be remembered in our scriptures. Seven times into eleven, and thrice eleven is his code, and absolutely worthy he was too. Raise your glasses to our brother, Michael. All stood up, looked at his nicely charred corpse, and clapped eleven times, and sat down again. Brother Joseph moved his chair away, and considered the corpse laying beautifully decorated in front of him. First, my brothers, I have to manage the internal organs, but, but first we need to be able to access them. <laughs> At this the Supreme Lava's eye was wide open and started to wiggle in anticipation. It would be the first. That was the strict protocol of these occasions. Um, first though, and for it to be considered worthy of this esteemed gathering, the royal tasting, and then we shall be able to continue. Yes. Brother Joseph wielded the scalpel and gently cut around the wide orbit of Brother Michael's left eye, cut the optic nerve with a plop, and gently placed the quivering eye, rather like a jelly, onto a small silver plate which was handed to the butler, and he in turn took it to the supreme lava, who was shooting around in the murky fluid inside its jar, 
filled with excitement and very keen to sample Brother Joseph's cooking skills. The butler gently tipped the silver plate and the eyeball quivered and slid in serous fluid and into the tank. The supreme lava opened its hungry mouth and its razor-sharp teeth popped open the eye and in an instant it had disappeared. Um, as I have prepared this feast in honour of Brother Michael, I do wholeheartedly accept the privilege of eating the other eye. I honour thee, Brother Michael, when I crush your eye with my incisors. Your vitreous humour shall trickle down my gullet. <laughs> with this eye, he did not use the royal scalpel but dug his finger into the eye socket, his index finger finding its way just behind the eye, and it popped out, stalk and all. He detached the eyeball from its charred stalk and placed it on his tongue for all to see. They all clapped eleven times as he bit hard on the jelly. It disappeared from view. Now, for everyone's enjoyment, he would now open the nicely cooked corpse. My brothers, I shall now gain access to the internal delights that await us all inside this nicely cooked body. To start, I shall need to open the thoracic cavity, which is no easy task if one is serving a human. To make this much easier, I shall deploy this electric saw. The butler held up the electric saw for everyone to see. I shall place the distal end of the saw at the top of the sternum and pull down. It's quite a noisy saw, so please feel free to cover your ears. It won't take long. <laughs> The sternum now fully cut, two of the butlers on opposite sides of the table lean over and across it, pulling at the two sides of the ribcage as it gradually opened with a distinct cracking sound. The chest was open. Brother Joseph smiled as his extremely sharp scalpel cut around the ventricles of the heart and the organ was held up for all to see. There were great cheers of glee. They would all remember Brother Michael. The heart was placed over the tank, the lava frantic to attack it as it slid into the fluid. Their supreme lava would be happy for a while as the little teeth sliced through the small muscle. Every mouthful was delightful. Each salmon was asked what organ he wished for, and each plate in turn was filled with delicious steaming meat, some firm and some soft. The contrasting textures were delightful indeed. In around an hour and a half, most of the corpse had been eaten. The Lord Lieutenant was ravenous, and he enjoyed eating the penis and testicles the latter breaking open with a delightful popping sound. 
Brother Joseph cut off the ears, all nice and crispy now, and handed these to his personal valet, who smiled with delight as the ears crunched like crackling between his teeth. Some requested seared skin, while others just wanted muscle from the arms and the legs. Overall, all of those present were satiated beyond their wildest dreams. Brother Michael, in a way, would live on inside them. The dense trees and foliage of Savonake Forest hid the light from Savonake House, and the whooping of delight as the salmons continued their celebrations late into the night. Scraps of corpse for the Dobermans. Hooded figures were situate all around the perimeter of Savonake House, ready to unleash deadly force against anyone who might be tempted to trespass. Not many did, and those that did were never seen again. A ghostly white stallion appeared out of nowhere, ridden by a lady in a long white coat, and she disappeared deep into the forest. In the distance, an owl hooted. They'll lock you up. <laughs> The end. If it's sci-fi, adventure, intrigue, with a liberal amount of pure horror, then you have found something rather special. Over 2,000 years ago, they came across the void of space from their world, Ruvius, a race of cold-hearted extraterrestrials intent on colonizing Earth, our world, taking over humankind undetected and slowly and secretly bending us to their will. They had studied our world in the minutest detail and were confident they could enslave our world by covert means, as had happened on other unsuspecting planets. The Salmons, high caste Ruvians, were close to Earth as they made their final preparations for landing. A medium-sized mountain is selected within which they built their incredible city. Peter Grants, our protagonist, a young lad full of adventure, stumbles across the Salmons on one of his visits to the mountain caves and also encounters a benevolent race, the Regellians, who try to help him. Events soon spiral out of control as time and space rework in strange and mysterious ways. The question is, can Peter prevail against such a mighty race? There are many clues and surprises throughout, and once you start playing this audiobook, then hang on tight. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Enter the world of Peter Krantz. <laughs>